We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Will Weber is on the board. Will Erskine, booking the guests. In the newsroom, Dino Weeks and Dave Woodard. The great CHML newsroom is all over another stinky story in the hammer. Let's just say it's a giant poop with the scoop flushed into the harbor. The latest at the top and bottom hour. Here's Scott Thompson. (laughs) Are you watching the game? Come on. He's more interested in the poop story. <laughs> yeah! Uh, he's more interested in the poop story. Uh, no, he's not. I'm just kidding. Uh, good afternoon. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson, Hamilton Today. The gang's all here. Uh, the newsroom huddled around uh, the TVs. It's amazing. It's hilarious. Uh, and I'm sure wherever you are, people are doing the same thing. Canada, um, uh, unfortunately, uh, but man, holding their own. Unbelievably. Uh, one nothing right now for... Uh, for Belgium, but uh, second-ranked team, come on, let's be serious here. Even to go out and, uh, yeah, many have said, just to make it. There you go. There's the goal right there. Uh, get your souvenirs, get your little kit there and stuff, and then come on home. <laughs> Is there a swarm of hornets somewhere around here that I'm... <clears throat> you know, the hearing's still gone. It's Anyway, uh, <laughs> the Vuvuzela. Anyway, um... Where the hell was I? So uh, the game is on, and and it's amazing how when you've got a a horse in the race, a team in the game, how it uh, just changes everything. And as I was mentioning, uh, the the goal has already been scored. The game has already been won because we're there. Collect your kit, go home, and call it all a day. But no, uh, they're there and they're, they're holding their own against a very, 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 very good team. So, uh, anything can happen in sport. I'm, <laughs> my sense of why I think it's like could win the whole thing. Well, I don't think so, son. That's neither the idea here at all. Uh, it, it's to, to work hard to get to that level. And then, you know, that's the next step is, is winning it all, I guess, or at least placing. So, uh, congratulations to, uh, to the team, Team Canada and everything that's going on and everything everybody's doing down there. And, uh, it's just, it's, it's incredible. I should say over there. It's incredible. And you know, all Canadians in some form are, uh, soccer or football fans today, whichever way you want to call it, uh, simply because uh, we should be very proud of where we are. And here's the other thing that, uh, well, well, you know, again, I've got it on in the corner of my eye and, and things are uh, are back and forth here. But uh, I think what I noticed right right away with the opening ceremonies, again, like very, very uh, beautiful, very well done. Uh, and it really makes you feel proud. I mean, it makes you feel proud to to be a Canadian. The kids out there on the uh, on the pitch with the players and such, and and then of course the singing of the national anthems. And uh, boy, oh boy, they get into her, don't they? I mean, it, it's amazing. And you know, I've and I've often said this. I've I've been fortunate enough to uh, to go to the odd soccer game, and it doesn't matter what the sport is when you see it 
performed live, when you see it played live with a live audience and their live fans, there is nothing like it. And, you know, much like uh, an artist or a, or a, or a singer or whatever that, that tours from town to town, you may go see a show thinking, I'm not that much of a fan, and then walk out the other end, hopefully, you know, a fan for life. It's the same thing with any sport, whether it's whether it's soccer, whether it's uh, 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 football, whether it's hockey, whether it's basketball, uh, whether it's Formula One racing. I mean, there's just something about being there and capturing the spirit, the environment. Uh, I remember the first time i went to a, a toronto fc game way back when and i you know the show was in the crowd <laughs> it was hilarious and the spirit and and the chanting and the loyalty and and such uh it, it's very very passionate and and i think that's what's great so you get something that's that passionate and then you stick uh you know the name canada beside it and uh, i think we're all in we're all we're all slowly uh if you not are already diehards uh you know canada is a a completely a totally multicultural state and all you have to do is watch uh any of the professional sports that we play uh to see that and that is what is amazing that is what is absolutely fabulous when you see everybody coming together rowing in the same direction and at a time when we appear to be a little divisive a little on this side a little, no let, let me rephrase that we seem to be playing in the extremes where you're way over the here or you're way over there uh and this part here which is where a lot of common sense is, has seemed to have left us. So it's amazing that when when we have a common denominator like sport, how it brings us together. And uh, boy, uh, this team should be so proud of uh, what they've accomplished, what they've done. It's so cool getting to know all of the the players and 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 the the personnel involved in this team. And, and, and learning their story and how they got to where they are. And it is an incredible story to watch. And I'm sure you're all going to become fans if you're not already over the course of this tournament. And as I said before, I mean, I don't think it matters uh, how far they go. Just the first half that I saw. My goodness, that's um, that's pretty respectable. That's pretty respectable. All right, we're going to talk about this coming up uh, throughout the show, of course, and keep you abreast of what's going on uh, as best we can. And I'll try to stay focused on the microphone as opposed to the screen. Uh, but anyway, we're going to talk about uh, the, the World Cup and different angles of it, including business, including coaching, what it means to the kids and this game coming forward, uh, and the potential of what it means in Canada for the future. We'll, we'll hit at it from... Uh, various angles throughout the course of the afternoon. Also, I'm going to talk to the Canadian Dental Association, get you a bit of an update on what the new dental uh, federal dental benefit uh, federal dental benefit plan is all about, what it means, and uh, what you get out of it. We'll talk about that coming up a little later on. And as Kurt uh, so delicately alluded to in the opening, uh, there's another sewage issue in Hamilton. And this one is very bizarre uh, in the sense that, well, I don't want to spoil the fun. I don't want to open the lid before it's time. Uh, Ken Mann's going to be joining a CHML reporter and talk about uh, the latest in uh, the sewer pipe that uh, didn't go to where it was supposed to go. And Elizabeth May is going to be joining us, a co-leader of the Green Party, a new leadership change there. I want to ask her some things about uh, climate change and about our solution to this problem uh, moving through it as well. So hopefully we'll get them, uh, those some fac- uh, fascinating questions and answers there coming up a little later on. That's in the 4 o'clock hour. 
Belgium ahead of Canada right now, one nothing, uh, and we're at the sixty ten uh, mark. No, I'm not watching at all, boss. I'm uh, I'm doing the show here, and look at that. It's three twenty one. It's Hamilton today. Feel free to jump into the fun. Send us a note, Scott Thompson at nine hundred chml dot com. Phone lines always open nine zero five six four five three two two one. Talk text. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, we'll always looking for your last word on the board. Don't forget coming up after the five o'clock news, your chance to play Hammerhead Trivia. Love to have you help us give you some tickets to uh, Hamilton Bulldogs and Kingston coming up in December. All right. Uh, as you may or may not be watching, but don't worry, we'll keep you up to date because uh, we have people that are. <laughs> Is there anybody here that isn't? Uh, it's uh, Canada's first World Cup match in decades. There's lots of soccer around this. And again, the great thing about sport, it brings us together, whether we're into the beautiful game or not. Uh, it gives us all a reason to be, pr- to be proud. And also is a benefit if you are in the game of sport hospitality or um, any sort of businesses related there, too. Uh, also, merchandising. Where will that go after this appearance? Let's bring in Marvin Ryder, professor at Groot School of Business, McMaster University, with us now. Marvin, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I'm great, thank you. Glad to be here. So, Marvin, let's talk about merchandising right away. Uh, what about jerseys, things like that? We all you know, got our favorite uh, leaf wear, tie cat wear, whatever. Uh, what does this do for the merchandising aspect around this team and this sport? Right. So I, I hate to say it to you like this. It's a little hard for me to answer the question the way you've asked it, because uh, in Canada, we are a multicultural uh, country. And while for sure there are lots of us that are cheering on Team Canada, especially yep. because they hadn't been there since the 80s. Uh, this is a, a momentous day to see Canada back in the World Cup. Um, the reality is that they'll be lucky to get more than three games at this World Cup. If they're losing to Belgium, and of course Belgium is expected maybe to be one of the countries that take it all, will they even win anything here? However, having said that to you, there are lots and lots of soccer fans who also cheer on other teams that so they have a roots in Portugal, they have roots in Italy, they have roots in England, and so they'll be wearing those things so that we know in general, globally, globally, spending on things like merchandise add up to four, maybe five billion dollars in a World Cup year. Hard to know exactly what it's going to be in Canada, and is it going to be spending on Canadian jerseys or these other jerseys so they can show support to whatever they consider to be their friendly team? A valid point, Marvin. We've all seen the flags flying from uh, roofs of cars and that sort of thing. We know everybody's, you know, back in the old country, their teams here and there, and they do bring those uh, passions with them. But what about the new fan that's coming in that's just getting exposed to this from a Team Canada level? Yeah. Well, again, this is an important deal. Uh, At this moment, only... uh, 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 just let me get the numbers right here. 32 teams qualify starting in 2026. That's going to go up to 48 teams. And there is a belief that once you start taking in the top 48, Canada will appear with much more frequency as well in 2026. Uh, the, the World Cup is going to be hosted in North America. Now, I'm, I'm being very generous here. Really, most of the key games will appear only in the United States. But Canada is hosting some. Mexico is hosting some. And so what we're really looking at here over the next four, five, six years is a growth of the sport in Canada. Soccer is already one of the two dominant sports globally. The other one is basketball. You can play soccer as long as you have shorts, a ball, and a field. 
Whereas mm -hmm. you can play basketball as long as you have shorts, a ball, and a hoop. Sometimes in urban areas, playing basketball is easier than soccer. These sports are becoming the dominant sports in the world. I'm sorry for hockey fans who are listening to us or baseball fans. Uh, those are not as strong globally. So we know this is going to grow more and more and more. We know, for instance, that bars and restaurants have chosen to open earlier because the games are being played in Qatar. Uh, the start time, for instance, it starts at 11 o'clock. Many restaurants don't open at 11, but they're opening temporarily, and they're seeing people coming in, people taking longer lunch breaks, uh, productivity going down in the office a little bit as it goes. But it's because it's this once-in-every-four-year kind of a thing. Uh, talk about branding and uh, corporations being involved in this tourney. Obviously, there is a certain amount of controversy because of the host uh, country. Um, I'll give one example uh, that is more uh, to do with the fans and less to do with politics. But Budweiser, yep. who are now, I guess, giving a whole pile of beer to whatever country wins because they can't serve it there. What is it like for a corporate from a corporate perspective from this tournament? Well, it's no different than being a sponsor of the Olympics uh, in a way that this is a, a event that captures the attention of the globe. So to be the official supplier of fill in the blank, fill official supplier of timepieces or cars, or in this case, beer, it's, it is a big deal. Uh, Budweiser was planning to spend close to $200 million on their sponsorship alone. And that's just one product of the group. Uh, in total, these uh, uh, World Cup uh, matches are expected to take in nearly four and a half billion dollars in revenue. And in a crazy part of this, Qatar itself has spent almost $200 billion building stadiums for this event. This is a country of three million people. If you want to do the math on that quickly, that's roughly $67,000 per person they've spent to build the facilities alone for this. So it, it, these are massive numbers. Now, do you get a good return on that investment? I'm a bit skeptical. As a marketing professor, I think sometimes our love and interest in sports makes us a fanatic where we're willing to spend anything to be involved, when I think sometimes companies would be well advised to say, really, are we getting the full bang for a buck? Maybe we should pull back. But if I do pull back, if, if for instance, Coca-Cola didn't want to be the sponsor of the World Cup, I can tell you Pepsi would be there mm. in a heartbeat. So they, they get into this uh, almost nuclear battle between businesses is to see which one can spend the most and, and be there live for this event. Only a couple of seconds left. With the situation with Budweiser, could they not see this coming? Well, uh, there's been a lot of these kinds of problems, uh, Scott, frankly, with the World Cup. Uh, what, what if Israel had qualified, been one of the 32? Could they even have been allowed to play in there? What about the LGBT community? We've had comments about that. Up until last weekend, Budweiser was supposed to be served only in the stadiums. Now, Cutter at the last minute made a, a different decision and said, no, only de-alcoholized beer in the stadiums. But they have allowed beer to be sold in the fan villages, which are about a kilometer away. By the way, if you want one, Scott, it's $16 and a half for 500 milliliters. <laughs> I could make a small uh, comment here about the facilities in Toronto, but I won't. Uh, Marvin Ryder with us, Professor DeGroote School of Business, McMaster University. Thank you so much for the time. Be well. I will. Thank you. 
You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. The federal dental benefit uh, uh, plan has officially become law. What does this mean? How does this change things? Lots of debate about this over the last little while. And, of course, uh, that uh, partially a result of the uh, amalgamation, not the amalgamation, the uh, agreement, the uh, whatever you want to call it, between the NDP and the Liberals. Uh, let's find out what it all means. Let's bring in Dr. Lynn Tompkins, Canadian Dental Association president and with us now doctor thank you for the time i hope you're well i'm very well thank you scott thanks very much for having me so your thoughts on what this supplies and how it fits into where we are well we are uh very pleased to see that the government has come out with uh, a definitive interim plan uh the canada dental benefit does uh, provide up to 650 dollars um per year and it, it covers two years so potentially up to $1,300 per year per child uh, to visit the dentist uh, to have their teeth looked at and that's something that we're very pleased about because uh, one thing that we do advocate for at the Canadian Dental Association is for children small children to be taken to the dentist within six months to a year of the eruption of the first tooth for basically a well baby visit mm-hmm. so if we can identify uh, little kids that are going to be susceptible to dental cavities early, we can help to prevent a lot of problems. So we're hoping that uh, this benefit will be used by parents and guardians to get children uh, under the age of 12 to, who are not currently visiting the dentist, who don't have any third-party coverage or not covered under any other benefits plan, uh, that they will get those kids into the dentist. And it starts December 1st, although the payments are retroactive into sometime in October. So, uh, in general, we're pleased with this. It is an interim measure. It goes until uh, June 30th, 2024. Uh, And it also gives us a bit of a chance, because the government is committed to a more robust dental care plan uh, by the end of 2025. It does give us a chance to sit back, see how things work out with this, and then uh, have a good discussion about what kinds of design features we should have for any kind of a a longer-term dental program. Uh, You said in terms, so is this sort of almost like a pilot project in the sense, because many have said this, obviously you would submit a claim and you'd get paid out for a certain amount of money. Is is this the template moving forward, do you think, or is this just the starting point? I think this is more of the starting point. It remains to be seen uh, what the utilization will be on this plan. We hope that, uh, we hope it will be high. And so we are looking for the government to to help us and dental organizations to get the word out to eligible parents and guardians. So this would be people who are already collecting the Canada Child Benefit. It would be a similar process to go on the CRA website. And people will have to attest that they don't have uh, any third-party coverage that they would be going out of pocket for this um, for the expense and they also have to provide documentation and they do have to signal that they intend or that they do have an appointment with a dentist so the money will be going directly to the parents or guardians of these children and um, you know and then they will be able to to book an appointment come into the office and have whatever treatment is needed taken care of are you concerned that the payment is out and the parent doesn't necessarily have to take the kids to the dentist? Does that happen? Would that happen? Could well, that happen? I can tell you over 35 years as a practicing dentist here in Toronto with a wide variety of um, socioeconomic groups represented within my patient population, that across the board, parents want to do the right thing for their children. So I'm yeah. pretty confident that people are going to be, this This will be a great 
uh, help to people that uh, are very worried about their kids, right? They know their kids need to, uh, to get to the dentist. The child may be suffering toothaches. The child might be missing school. Dental cavities is one of the most common reasons for kids to miss school. So I, I think we can count on parents getting their kids into the dentist to get their teeth looked at and looked after. So I, I'm quite optimistic. Um, again, I'm just playing devil's advocate. If it's a check coming in and there's food that's got to be put on the table and during incredibly tough times, is that a concern? Well, obviously, we want people to be able to eat, to be able to pay their rent, and uh, you do need teeth to chew with. So I, I would like to I would like to go on the you know the basis of my own experience with parents who I've seen in very difficult situations that will do anything to get their kids uh, treatment accomplished for them. So I, I think we're going to see a lot of kids coming in. I think we're going to identify a lot of children very early that are susceptible to decay and and to be able to see them before they develop larger pr uh, problems. What would you like to see as this moves forward in, in, in helping design a future plan? What would you like that, that plan to look like? Well, certainly we need to have a plan that emphasizes prevention because we know that prevention works, uh, especially in dentistry. We know that uh, education around uh, oral self-care, around diet, uh, and so on. So uh, certainly prevention, uh, basic diagnostic procedures, you need to have an examination and diagnosis to know what's going on in the mouth, x-rays, and so on. And, uh, you know, people are going to need uh, fillings, extractions, root canals, and so on. So this is, this is what's going to be part of this next big discussion. What and we have done a lot of work on this at, at the Canadian Dental Association. We've looked at uh, you know all the programs that are out there. We've looked at what goes on internationally. So we do have a lot of information to share. And the government's been and the minister in particular has been very open to discussion and has uh, you know is really taking the time to to do this right. Um, I don't want to put words in anybody's mouth, but it may have been the past president of the Canadian Dental Association that said uh, a couple of years ago. Um, the provinces have the programs, they just need the funding. Well, that is another issue for the politicians to look at because across yeah. the country there are a variety of programs uh, that cover, uh, some cover seniors, some cover disabled patients, some uh, cover uh, children, but they vary quite a lot and the, uh, the funding uh, has, has varied quite a lot. And uh, for instance, I, I will speak briefly about Ontario. Ontario has some of the, the most underfunded programs provincially. So we would like to see those addressed as well. Dr. Lynn Tompkins with us, Canadian Dental Association president, talking about the new plan coming in. Uh, doctor, thanks so much for the time. Good luck with this moving forward. Thanks very much, Scott. And I hope the Canadian team gives us all something to smile about. There you go. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. We've chatted uh, a lot uh, over the course of uh, this pandemic in regard to uh, renewables, electric vehicles and such. Obviously, the Russian invasion of Ukraine changing a lot of things. Uh, and, and we're certainly um, not doing a lot with our Canadian liquid natural gas, but uh, we are doing a lot when it comes to EVs uh, and the production of those vehicles, which is great, creating jobs here. And not only that, the minerals needed to produce the batteries and all all of the other uh, components that go into uh, this renewable energy industry. And another big announcement coming up uh, about battery supply as uh, Minister Champagne is down uh, or was in Asia or trying to sell uh, Asia on 
Canada as a source for these. Let's bring in Ian Lee, Associate Professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University, with us now. Ian, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Doing very well, thanks. So, Ian, um, uh, obviously we seem to be uh, realizing what is here, what we need, uh, what the world needs as far as renewables moving forward. Talk about this announcement. Talk about the raw materials uh, needed and how Canada can be a part of that supply chain. And, and does this mean jobs here? Possibly. Um, I say possibly because this is a, a very um, capital-intensive and very technology-intensive industry. I mean, Elon Musk has shown us this. Uh, These are very uh, sophisticated, technologically sophisticated uh, vehicles. And um, so we are trying to get in and develop competencies in an area where we've never built before, but that's true of everybody, I mean, because this is an emerging industry. Um, And so it's, it's simply too soon to say, not suggesting we shouldn't be trying. That's not where I'm going. I want to actually, Scott, situate this because it's really part of a, I think, I believe, it's part of a, a larger debate that um, uh, has been initiated uh, by the uh, Treasury Secretary, the Finance Minister, basically, of the American government, uh, the U.S. government, and picked up by Christy Freeland, our Finance Minister, and this whole idea of uh, friend shoring or ally shoring. Uh, which uh, for which of which or for which <laughs> I have mixed views. Um, having said that, whether I have mixed views or not is irrelevant. It's, it's is this emerging this idea that the world is retrenching from peak globalization uh, when the China was ad- when China was admitted to the WTO in what 2001 I think it was. We've now in the last two three four years have had buyer's remorse in the West. Uh, towards China, maybe the last five years. Um, public opinion polls in both Canada and U.S. and Europe have shown that there's far greater suspicion uh, towards uh, China. And the government of China, I mean, uh, it's not about the Chinese people, it's about the government of China and, the, and President Xi. Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot of talk, and I think it's going to happen in very sensitive areas and that's sort of code word for high-technology-intensive goods. There's going to be a retrenchment where we bring home, or companies and uh, bring home uh, parts of the supply chain that are in China that are high-end. I'm distinguishing this very sharply from lower-end value-added. I'm not talking about plastic shovels that are sold ultimately at Canadian Tire or Home right. Depot. I'm not talking about all the stuff we buy at Walmart, Canadian Tire, Loblaws, etc. I'm I'm not talking food exports, not putting down food exports. They're wonderful, you know, food, fish, wheat. Uh, but those I'm not referring to. I'm referring to high-end stuff, uh, exports of chips and that kind of thing. So where I'm going with this is this debate we're having, or what this conversation we're having about this decision is part of a larger debate of the uh, friend-shoring or ally-shoring, where uh, the U.S. government is leading the way, and they are declaring uh, uh, quite a few different goods in different industries to be uh, not um, uh, legitimate, or that they're being banned from China. That is to say, companies that make things like chips. So everybody knows what I'm talking about, where they say that you cannot export these anymore to China. And uh, so that's going to force reshoring. This is going to now. It doesn't mean that every last one of those businesses are going to come back to the U.S. or to Canada. They may go to 
friends, uh, countries that are friendly and allies of Canada or U.S. So this, what we're talking about here, is part of that, I think, larger geopolitical um, uh, trend that's emerging. Uh, we hear lots about renewable, and, and one of the great benefits is is supposed to be more jobs, what have you. Yet we see, I read a stat, and you can help me with this if you want, China produces like 70% or controls 70% of the solar panel industry. Yeah. So uh, we're not doing these jobs. With the mineral situation, is this another case of shipping out raw materials? Uh, another dirtier country does something with them, and then we buy them all back, and our hands are could, clean. Could be. Um, this is where... And that's why I said I'm I'm mixed mind. Uh, And what I meant by that, what I was pointing toward, was that this government, I think it's fair to say, clearly believes in what back in the 70s and 80s we called an industrial policy, an industrial strategy. You know, where government was going to essentially decide which sectors of the economy were going to prosper. There was a lot of talk in those days when I started my Ph.D. in 84, and when I was doing my master's in public policy in 82, about METI in Japan, the Ministry of International Trade. Or they, a lot of people said they were responsible for the Japanese economic miracle. There were books that later came out that really kiboshed that idea and threw that idea out, that it wasn't METI after all. But nonetheless, there's this belief that, you know, government has the big picture. I've actually heard public servants say this privately. Well, we've got the big picture. We understand where everything's going, and we understand what needs to be done, so we can, you know, direct uh, uh, the uh, certain industries. The record on state-directed capitalism, I think, is a miserable failure. I mean, the most extreme case, of course, is the Soviet Union, state central planning, and we all know that that didn't work out. But even if we don't use such an extreme case, we look at France. Um, or uh, other countries that have engaged in state central uh, dairy uh, directed planning it hasn't been that successful the that bastion of capitalism of uh, you know anarchy and uh, meaning capitalist anarchy where every company goes off and does its own thing uh, hasn't been such a bad mistake you know it is the largest economy in the world with 23 trillion so what i'm trying to say is i'm not sure that the state directing the uh, the industry is going to succeed. Um, we certainly would like more successes. I think they're going to have to pair partner up some of these companies because they're just small. They don't have a lot of capital. Hmm. They don't always have access to the leading technology. So it sure seems to me like they're going to be wanting to partner with maybe some larger American companies. Why American? Because they're right next door, and we have very uh, in- integrated economies. And we have lots of uh, relationships with American companies. Hmm. It seems to me to be a natural fit. But uh, that's where I think it's going to have to be more organic and evolve through market forces being directed by markets rather than governments. We may get there, but I'm not so sure we'll get there because of, you know, the Minister of Industry uh, pointing us uh, and pushing us in that direction. Ian Lee, Associate Professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. Always fascinating. Ian, thanks for the time. Be well. My pleasure, Scott. Thank you. This story, actually, a hastily called news conference, and you know the news uh, room jumps into uh, into action, and we find out that uh, another sewage leak. But this one is uh, very different and a little bizarre. Uh, to get the details and find out what we know, let's bring in Ken Mann, reporter at 900 CHML, and is with us now. You're always going after the intense stories, Ken. That's what I love. Did you wash your hands? <laughs> well, sure. 
<laughs> All right. So what happened here? Uh, obviously, housing project, uh, sewage uh, from that, uh, somehow getting into a sewer line. What happened? Well, you have to go back to 1996, and uh, apparently a city contractor was, was doing some work on the in the underground infrastructure in the area of Burlington Street and, and Wentworth. And um, while they were doing the work, they they inadvertently... Or not inadvertently, but it was actually quite intentional. But, uh, well, <laughs> see, even I'm confused by this one, Scott. I need to yeah. take a step back. So the, they, there was a pipe for uh, wastewater from connecting uh, uh, an area of homes, 39 properties in total. And this pipe was connected to the storm sewer through a hole that was put into it at that location back in 1996. Now, the contractor at the time, according to the city's director of water, um, believe that they thought they were actually connecting to storm sewers. So this wasn't done intentionally or, or maliciously in any way. However, as a result of that, you had uh, wastewater from these 39 properties in that area entering into the storm sewer and ultimately into the harbor from the combined sewage um, overflow uh, at the Wentworth location that goes into the harbor. So, um, yeah, so all of this was apparently discovered yesterday while city staff now were taking a look at some uh, pictures in that area and they had discovered this situation. So an emergency contractor was on site today to make repairs and to fix that problem so it won't continue. So, uh, again, correct me if I'm wrong. So building, uh, you know, connecting these houses to a sewer line, he or the contractor inadvertently put it that pipe into a sewer line. I don't, um, I don't know if a connection to houses had so much to do with this, because those would have been houses that would have been in that area already for, for quite a long time. So why would he have been doing business there then, I guess? I, I really, uh, that I that I can't tell you. That's part of uh, the story. Okay, so um, obviously the situation has been rectified and it's going into a sewage line now. How yeah, much so of it? As how- of today, that that the pipe from those properties now goes on to the main sewage main uh, sewer line that goes down to the Woodward right. Avenue wastewater treatment plant. So that's all been reconnected. So, uh, still an investigation into this to find out how intentional, what it was, what they knew, what they didn't knew, uh, know, because there seems to be a bit of a gray area here. Well, I, I, I don't think there's any indication that any of this was done... Intentionally. With a, perhaps it was done intentionally thinking that they were both storm water pipes, but there was no malicious intent here or any, you mean any knowledge su- that anybody was doing anything that was going to harm the environment, you mean- certainly. Both sewage pipes, not so he would have thought he was drilling into a sewage pipe, right? As opposed to the storm pipe. No, storm water. Storm, storm water, water. Because there's storm. already a there's a combined sewage overflow tank that that is in operation in that Wentworth area. So that combined sewage overflow pipe goes right. to the harbor. Okay, I see what you're saying. So um, <laughs> how do they find this? Well, it was, I guess they were doing some preparatory work for some work that was scheduled to take place in that area. And while they were going through some some pictures that had been taken of that location, um, somebody spotted this and they said, that doesn't look right. So they went out and uh, and got into there and took a look at it and discovered that, in fact, this was what was happening. 
and were able to trace back to the contractor so they know who the contractor is? Well, I guess they were able to trace back to when last work would have been done there and when this would have occurred. So what happens now? What is left to be done here? Where does this go from here? Well, I I would think that um, we will certainly see uh, an an auditor's, um, uh, the city auditor looking into this situation that's already been requested by Mayor Horvath. And uh, so I'm sure a report will be coming on that. And yeah, I'm I'm sure we haven't heard the last of this one. We also still don't know how much sewage would have gone into the harbor over the 26 years. And we're expecting some sort of estimate on that from Director of Water Winters uh, in the next day or so, and certainly by early next week. Would any of this stuff been inspected or required an, an inspector way back when and when it was done? Um, I, that's not the understanding that I had from listening to the uh, the news conference today. Uh, interesting. So there's more to come on this. Is that accurate? I, I would say so. Yeah, certainly we'll we'll be hearing more. But as you said at the start, it's really it's an entirely different situation than we've seen yeah. at Shadok. And yeah. and yeah, to compare the two is is not really fair. They're both um, terrible incidents, obviously, yeah. with yeah. with negative impacts on the environment, but very different scenarios. Yeah, very true. All right, Ken Mann with us, reporter 900 CHML, covering the sewage story uh, in the city. Ken, as always, thanks so much. Be well. Thank you, Scott. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right, Elizabeth May once again leading Canada's Green Party along with a co-leader, Jonathan Pedno. And to talk about that, where the party's going and the future, let's bring in Elizabeth May, co-leader of the Green Party, and with us now. Elizabeth, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. I'm doing great, Scott, and thanks for having me on. All right, let's get the party stuff out of the and way by first. by the way, Jonathan was sorry he couldn't make it, too. We're both running around and having such a good time. Oh, well, that's good to see. Uh, so let, <laughs> let's talk about the party first and, and how you got to where you are. You were gone, then you're back, and, and we certainly know the history. We don't need to go there. Uh, but, but how did you end up where you are and, and what's going on? Well, I, I mean, the last, I mean, it's been the most enormous honor of my life that since 2011 I served in Parliament as the member of Parliament for Saanich Gulf Islands, which is, for listeners, is southern Vancouver Island. I'm so lucky. But the, the, um, the period of time from 2019, I'd stepped down as leader. I didn't think I was going to want to run for leader again because I, I, you know, I, I love the work as a parliamentarian. I ha- I've always been pretty honest about the fact I don't like politics much. I love being a parliamentarian, but not a politician. So what happened to change my mind about it was as the leadership race was beginning to get organized, I was confident I wasn't going to put my hat in the ring. And then the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change issued a report on April 4th that kind of shook me to my core. And I started asking myself some tough questions about whether I was doing enough on the climate issue. That While we still have a hope of protecting our children's future, the, you know, the window is closing. That that opportunity pretty fast. It will be closed before the next election. And I know that the Liberals are not doing nearly enough as much as Conservatives say they're doing too much. The truth is their efforts are incremental and insufficient. And I I started pursuing a lot of avenues of what should I do to make a bigger difference. And it became crystal clear the thing I had to do was exactly what I had earlier said I'd never do, which is decide to run for leader. But I I also felt strongly that what I'd done before was in a structure 
that wasn't really conducive to doing the work within the Green Party's core values of respect for grassroots democracy. One single leader tended to carry the wrong message. It suggested that the leader had power over people, which which in the Green Party, the leader doesn't. The leader's job is to be the chief spokesperson. So long story short, once I'd made the decision that I was actually going to put my hat in the ring, I didn't want to do it the same way I'd done it before. I wanted to bring to the members of the party the opportunity of supporting co-leadership. And that's why I was so happy that as the oldest candidate in the leadership race at 68, I teamed up with the youngest candidate in the leadership race, Jonathan Pedno, who at 32 has an extraordinary background as a human rights uh, researcher, as a former journalist. He's got global experience in some of the scariest places on earth, quite honestly. So the two of us are, are you know, now as it sort of uh, we're I'm in the saddle again. He's in the saddle for the first time, and we're really positive about where we're going and rebuilding the party. All right, uh, let's get to the climate. Uh, let's get to what's going on. Um, and I don't want to have a debate between deniers and, and believers and what have you. I, I think it's pretty safe to say most Canadians are, are very concerned about the climate. Yeah. Uh, where the difference is, is the solution, and how do we get there? How do we solve these mm-hmm. problems? So uh, when I look ac- across, whether it's it, it, it's a GOP thing, whether it, or sorry, a, a convention of sort, or, or whether it's here politically in this country, I see a lot of different things going off in a lot of different directions is there any value and this is just a uh, you know a lay person asking some questions to the expert on all of this is there mm-hmm. is there any reason why we should not be focusing on one thing at once and for example getting the world off of coal would it not make more sense to roll row all in the same direction and try to hit one of those major goals as a t- at a time, as opposed to taking a country like Canada, which is responsible for less than, I guess, 2% of the world's greenhouse gases, uh, and, and ramming that down even more. If we take it down 1%, is that going to change the world, as opposed to working together to try to find cleaner uh, uh, fuels, whether it's renewable or cleaner fossil fuels in the future, to, to make the biggest dent in coal? Does that hold any value at all? Well, it's certainly important to have conversations about any approaches, but I start from a different vantage point is that I've been working, I've been working in, oh, I don't know, you could you can sound very bureaucratic or academic and say I've been working in international environmental policy for decades. It, I think Canada plays a bigger role than our percent contribution to changing the chemistry of the atmosphere. We actually are one of the 10 most polluting countries on earth, but that's not where I where I see Canada's real role. I worked really hard in the 80s to get a treaty, and we got it. It's called the Montreal Protocol to protect the ozone layer. Canada contributed relatively little to the problem of the threat to the ozone layer. The ozone layer was thinning. We had the Arctic hole opening up. I think probably most, most listeners remember. Canada drove the agenda to get an international treaty. We led the world. We actually put in place a treaty that not only stopped uh, ozone-depleting chemicals from being emitted, now the ozone layer is, in fact, repairing itself. I see what I do in Parliament and why it matters to be leader of the Green Party and why it matters to get Justin Trudeau to live up to the potential of our country to take a lead, is that when we take a lead, people notice. We can, in fact, have influence on more nations. I've never in my life, except on the climate issue, I've never heard politicians who 
should claim to be proud Canadians, run under the banner of Canada's too insignificant to matter. That's not our brand. Our brand is we punch above our weight. And if Canada were to say we have to cancel the Trans Mountain Pipeline, which, by the way, is a big loser, and Canada's taxpayers are, are wasting, we're, we are being forced to waste a lot of money by the Liberals' decision to buy a pipeline that the Texas firm decided was not viable. That's a $21 billion cost that we can avoid and reduce greenhouse gases at the same time and begin to be able to say to the world, we're a country that produces fossil fuels, but guess what? We're not going to build any new fossil fuel infrastructure. The amount we're producing now is at its absolute peak. We're not okay, let me, let, me, let me ask you this, Elizabeth, because we're, we're almost out of time here. Okay. I'm looking at something like Germany. I'm 60 years old, so I, I've been following this stuff for years. Germany at one point was at the forefront of all of this, whether it was wind, uh, what yeah. have you, um, and, and now finds itself you know, with a, with a natural gas pipeline full of holes to Russia, and we know that, certainly know the story there. Um, are we putting the cart before the horse? We, you know, the ozone layer was one thing. I think that might have been a little easier fix than coming up for a complete replacement for fossil fuels by slim, simply turning off the tap. I'm saying any expert I've talked to said it's a mixed bag uh, of, of, of both of these to get us there. Are we focusing enough on working on the dirtiest uh, of coal facilities and, and trying to eliminate that as opposed to, you know, again, becoming a leader while the rest of the country freezes. No, no, no. Look, look, nobody's going to be freezing. We've got a lot of renewable energy in this country. We can go to 100% renewable electricity on a grid across the country. But the, the problem with the climate issue is we no longer have the luxury of the choices you're holding out. Fifteen years ago, I mean, I, I started working on the climate issue when I was in Environment Canada in the minister's office back in 86, okay? So I'm 68. I remember we've moved from a place where we had the luxury of such choices and excellent questions that you're asking could have been, you know, we could have grabbed onto those if governments had been serious in 1995 or the year 2000. Where we are now is the science is telling us very clearly, and, and it's quite unforgiving science, that we have a very limited carbon budget, we are exhausting it, which means we don't have, uh, we have very little room in the atmosphere for more pollution. And in fact, we can't, we can't continue to burn oil, gas, or coal. We have to move sharply off of all of them. Now, President Zelensky in the Ukraine knows that. He keeps urging countries not to reverse on climate policies because of the war. The German government is moving forward on their renewable agenda. By the way, Germany, compared to Canada, Canada is right now emitting approximately 20% more than we, greenhouse gases than we did in, in 1990. Germany is at 40 to 45% less than 1990 levels. So we are laggards in the world. I think we'll show, not just to have us show leadership in some kind of you know, everybody can stand back. Then, Elizabeth, applaud. let me ask you this. Let me ask you this. Why? I mean, Germany uh, came to Canada, the German chancellor, uh, looking for natural gas, invested in a hydrogen facility, which, again, we've been talking about for 100 years, it seems, yeah. and then signed a deal with Mexico to buy natural gas, cleaner natural gas there. So, it's, you know, short, if they didn't... Yeah, it's a, Germany is still going to be moving off all fossil fuels quite sharply. Mm -hmm. They are in the current situation. Any any of their uh, decisions to buy any natural gas comes 
at a very short-term plan. Kansas natural gas, unfortunately, isn't natural gas. Most of it is fracked gas, and so the greenhouse gas emissions from fracking to create um, uh, basically fracked gas has the same carbon footprint as coal, so you're not making any advance. Uh, the, the German government right now, of course, is a coalition with the Green Party. The minister responsible for climate policy is the former co-leader, speaking of me being co-leader, former co-leader of the German Greens. They both co-leaders are currently in the German cabinet, but they've uh, they've got new co-leaders elected now that, that Annalena Borbach and Robert Habeck are cabinet members in that government. They are so committed to making sure that they move rapidly off fossil fuels, and they are also, of course, we're dealing with Putin and a war, mm. but there are many ways. In, I mean, one of the first things the European Union did when Putin began attacking Ukraine was to make sure Ukraine was connected to the EU electricity grid. Do you know right now the Ontario... Elizabeth, i got to cut you off right there. Isn't, we're, ...isn't connected to the Manitoba electricity grid. These are things we can fix. Uh, let's talk about this again. Elizabeth May with us, right. uh, co-leader of the Green Party. Thank you for the time. Good luck. Thanks so much. Talk again. Bye. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. All right. Earlier on today, Canada, for the first time in many, many years, faced off against Belgium. Pretty darn good team and held their own, uh, but unfortunately did not come out victorious. one nothing for Belgium. All right. There's no Vuvuzela. Close the door. There's, there's bees coming around here. Uh, let's uh, find out what happened and their opinion of Adams Royks with us, soccer editor for RotoWire and on the line now. Adam, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Thanks for having me. Hope you're well as well. So, your thoughts on what we saw? I mean, just from the uh, opening ceremonies and the pregame uh, uh, ceremonies that were going on, man, it just felt great to hear the Canadian national anthem. It just, it was great to just be a part of the party. But on the pitch, what were your thoughts? It was good to see Canada had a, a large crowd there. Uh, overall, maybe kind of disappointing, though. Uh, they, they put it on him in the first half. Alfonso Davies had a chance with the PK. He didn't, he didn't get it. Overall, you kind of think that Canada probably outplayed Belgium, which is something that maybe not anyone expected beforehand. You look at the score, 1-0, they ended up losing. But I think they come away with some kind of a positive because they kind of took it to Belgium for parts of the game. Obviously unfortunate not to get a point from it, but there are still some positives they, that Canada can take away from it. How much focus do you think there'll be on that penalty kick? Uh, I, there's, I mean, there's a chance Davies might not be on the next one if Canada get another in the World Cup. I'm not sure it was the best penalty kick he, he's ever taken. It, it didn't have a ton of power on it. But, I mean, in the first half, Canada had some other chances, and then there's even another PK call late in the first half that uh, you could argue it, it should have been another penalty for Canada. And and disappointing that it wasn't, and then Belgium turned that into a goal in their favor pretty much right after that. So definitely some unfortunate things uh, that happened to Canada, but and it ended in a loss, but there are positives. They they did outplay Belgium, so you can you can at least take that from it. What do you think Belgium is taking away from this? How do you think they feel about the game? 
I I don't think Belgium feel too well. They made some uh, halftime substitutions because it wasn't really working for them in the first half, and really they didn't do too much in the second half. They already had some questions coming in with, with an older defense and just overall how they're playing in general as a team. And I'm not sure how what they'll take away from it. They're first in the table right now because Croatia and Morocco both drew in their first match, but uh, the the, the uh, Croatia and Moroccan matches upcoming will be difficult for not only Canada, but for Belgium as well. I know Belgium are favored to win the group, but uh, I think they, they can consider them, themselves kind of lucky to take the three points out of this one. What do we take away from this? we got about 30 seconds left. Uh, the fact that they did show what they showed today. For Belgium, they just have to not show, show what they did in the first half today against Canada. Um, and what about Canada? They, and for Canada, at this point, they're just hoping for at least a point or two from these upcoming matches. That's what their goal will be. Adam Zorik with us, soccer editor, Roto Wire, uh, Canada, facing off against Belgium today, their opening game, losing one nothing. Adam, thank you so much for the time. Be well. Thanks for having me. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Boy, we haven't heard this name for a while. Um, and it's disturbing that we're talking about this today. Tim Bosma, the murderers of Tim Bosma, could get early parole eligibility. You might remember the death of the 32-year-old Ancaster man uh, who was murdered after taking two strangers for a test drive in a truck he was selling. And now we're talking early parole. Let's bring in Alex Pearson, two-time RTNDA winter, or winner rather, and host of the Alex Pearson Show, 9 to noon on 640 in Toronto. And if you remember, covered this story extensively every single day uh, in the courtroom for us way back when. Alex, thanks for the time. Great to talk to you. Unfortunately, terrible situation here. Um, what are your thoughts on this? First of all, give us an update. What do you know? Could these people actually get early parole? In this country, anybody can get parole. I mean, that, that's basically what we're now seeing. You know, it's funny because I saw this headline when the uh, top court made this ruling and it stuck out to me um, because this was the case I thought of because, of course, it was so extensively covered and because both men, Mark Smitch and Dylan Millard, got consecutive sentences. And while they're fighting their trials now, um, you know, I don't think anybody in their right mind had any issue with either of these thugs spending 75 years in jail um, because their offenses uh, were so, so egregious. And I thought of this when that judge came down where he's using this language that he's saying, well, consecutive sentences are cruel. And I thought, if these guys get out based on a ruling like this, then we have gone completely the wrong way in this country. Because as you know, Scott, there are some people who cannot be fixed who do not deserve second chances, who do not deserve um, a break. And frankly, I don't care if it's cruel to Mark Smitch and Dellen Millard. You know who it's cruel to? The people that he, they killed. So, you know, Tim Bosma, Laura Babcock, his father. These are the people who are shattered and destroyed by this. And so this is the direction we are going in this country where even the worst of criminals can now find a judge who will say, well, that's kind of cruel. So, yeah, theoretically, these guys could start applying for parole as soon as their uh, conditions are up. 
So uh, is that both of them? When would that would that start? What's the chance of that happening? And at the end of the day, probably pretty slim, but it's an exercise the family will have to get involved yeah. in. Is that accurate? Yeah. And so when you speak to cruelty, it's the Bosma family that will have to go and watch every time mm. there is a parole board hearing. That doesn't just happen once. That can happen as many times as these guys apply for it which means that those left behind, whether it's the Babcock family, whether it's um, the Millard family, you know, whomever is filing the letters, they have to do that. They have to go through the process of pleading with the parole board to, you know, not let these people go. And, and it is a really, it's not talked about because so often when we talk of victims of crime, it's not really about them. It should be, but it's not. Our justice system is designed to protect the rights of the accused. Okay. But there's got to be a, the, the scales have to balance. There has to be something for the victims. And so often, and I'd say most often, um, they are not in the thought process because we have moved so far to this, you know, restorative justice where, you know, maybe they'll be better the next time. Maybe they just need a second chance or a third chance or a fourth chance. And frankly, not everybody deserves another chance. And I would say Mark Smitch and Della Millard are two of them. And frankly, Scott, you know, when you get guys like this or Paul Bernardo or any other mm. of pieces of garbage of society, what's in it for them? They don't care. What do they care if they go through the process? They have nothing else going on. So they're not giving any thought uh, to these families. So what's it to them to kind of go through these processes um, and keep trying to get out? Now, look, I don't know what's going to happen with any of their uh, appeals, which to my knowledge, have yet to be heard. Um, so even if any of their cases, and I'd have a very hard time thinking that any of them would be overturned, but let's go to the worst case scenario. Let's say one of their cases is overturned. So that, that then reduces things uh, even more and changes things. But overall, this court ruling did no one, I think, any favors. I mean, I know the instinct when Stephen Harper brought in mandatory minimums and brought in things like consecutive sentences um, until we actually saw them tested on, on court cases, it didn't really, um, I don't think it had dawned on people what the implications were. Um, but then when they started coming in, people automatically kind of jumped to, the, well, that's too much. We can't do a mandatory uh, minimum. That You've got to give the judges flexibility. But on the, con- on the consecutive sentences, um, instead of like this knee-jerk reaction, well, it's draconian and it's terrible, um, I would think a lot of people, when they see headlines starting out, coming out like this, they're going to wish to God that we didn't have such kind of activist courts and actually did have these laws in the books. You named Paul Bernardo, and I was thinking that as you were speaking, uh, and I remember yeah. talking to the lawyer, Tim Danson, the second that this conviction went down, he immediately started preparing for parole yeah. hearings, even though this person was declared a, a, a dangerous offender and would never be let out. But the point mm-hmm. is, the family feels obligated whenever it comes up to go, and in the memory of their slain family members, stick up for them. That's just not Absolutely. right. It's not right, but you know what? Did, Did we not learn from Bernardo, though, Alex? Like, this, the Bernardo case was, you know, huge. I mean, did we not learn from this? Well, clearly not, because we're going in the opposite direction in this country, where things like violent crime are going up, and we're seeing more of it, because those who commit it know that there's no real huge penalty in this country. Life does not actually mean life. So I don't even know why we use that term anymore, because to me, it whitewashes the reality. Um, you know, the thing is, though, every day in this country, 
there are families who are going through this process. They don't get attention. Their names are not in the, in the media. Their cases go before the courts, and they are constantly, constantly trying to seek justice for their loved ones, trying to preserve justice. And they're up against a system that isn't designed for them. And until we see something, you know, change, and, and that would have to be legislated, I don't think it's going to get any better. In fact, I think it's going to get worse because it's very clear in this country that judges want to be able to have the flexibility to make decisions. Um, so when these cases get challenged, certainly at the upper upper court, um, they can be very dangerous. You know, we saw this almost like with that sex assault ruling. I don't know if you followed that one in the upper court where one guy who went to a party sexually assaulted two women, well, he didn't want to be on the sex offender registry for the rest of his life. So he takes the case to the upper court. The upper court says, yeah, that's too much. We, we really shouldn't have certain sex offenders on that list. And this guy, you know, probably can get on with his life. So let's get rid of those, um, you know, automatic sex offender registry. Well, well, hold on a second. Hold on a second. There's victims out there. There's two women out there who would probably say, no, he should be on that sex offender registry. And so we get these mm-hmm. sweeping decisions by the upper courts. They tend to, they do set a precedent. And then, you know, you find that people, anybody can apply to get through them. And so I think we're moving in the wrong direction. I certainly saw this headline. Actually, it was my mother. I was on air when, when the story dropped by Susan Claremont. My mom said, oh, my God, look at this. And my heart stopped because the first people I thought of certainly were the Bosmas. Uh, and the Babcock family, hmm. who literally, all they want is justice, you know, and they and they will never get it because these are the kinds of headlines um, and court rulings they are up against. And I think it's, I think it's, I think that is what is cool. Alex Pearson with us, host of the Alex Pearson Show, 9 to noon, 640 Toronto, and covered the Bosma murder trial extensively for us every single day and reported to us. Alex, thanks so much for the time. Mm-hmm. I'm sure we'll chat again yeah. on this. Be well. You as well, sir. Cheers. All right. Uh, we are approaching the end of the Emergencies Act inquiry. This is uh, it's going to be a star-studded week. All the big ministers are appearing, and, of course, the prime minister at the end of it all. Any significant ripples coming out of this? Uh, it seems like uh, the police chief is taking the brunt of most of it for um, not listening to intelligence as it came in and certainly not having a plan B if they decided not to move on, that being the Freedom Convoy. Uh, and, of course, uh, the uh, the Justice Minister echoed that earlier today as well. Let's bring in Peter Grant, Professor of Political Science, McMaster University. He is with us now. Peter, thank you for your time. Hope you're well. I am, thanks. So your thoughts on what you have seen so far and, and what's come out of this, uh, are, are we going to see anything significant? Are we at least going to you know, find that plan B in case this happens again? What are your thoughts on what you've seen? Well, I mean, I think the, uh, the head of the inquiry has to make a number of different findings in, in their final report. So, I mean, part of it is, and the, the sort of most real reason why we're having re is that when a government invokes the Emergencies Act, uh, there needs to be an inquiry afterwards to see whether they, in fact, were justified in doing so. And so there, uh, you know, it's unclear, actually, what the finding is going to be. You know, we did have the, the head of CSIS coming out last week and saying that he advised the government to, to invoke the act. Uh, but otherwise, you know, it's been a bit unclear whether this had really got to the level uh, which would justify it being invoked. So I think that's going to be one thing where we'll look to the, the head of the inquiry to make a finding. But it's true, there's this other piece that's been very important, which has been the failure of uh, policing uh, of, of the, the convoy and the demonstration. 
And there, yeah, a lot of the evidence is pointing towards the questions of competence of the Ottawa police chief. But we've also had some real questions about what our provincial government was doing or not doing and its unwillingness to really come to the table and, and help, uh, you know, work with the Ottawa police and the uh, federal government to, to solve uh, the policing issue. So there could be some some interesting findings there. I mean, we've had evidence presented publicly, but there's also, you know, a big documentary record. And so... It will be interesting to see how the commissioner makes use of, of the testimony, but also what's in the documents to, to make findings. On. I'm not sure how much any more people can add to this discussion, uh, Peter, in the sense that we've seen over time what has at least come out from the testimony we've heard. Um the CSIS director, and I think this is a turning point. You can tell me if you think the same. Last week, when, as you mentioned, the CSIS director said uh, there is not enough to meet the uh, criteria to meet the threshold to call the Emergencies Act. He said that quite clearly um, by the definition, but he did still recommend it to the prime minister, uh, my words, to clean up the mess. Was this about a threat to national security or was this about cleaning up a mess due to a dysfunctional leadership during the early stages of this? Yeah, so again, I mean, I guess that will be an unwinding because uh, ultimately if the act was you know, used just to clean up a mess, right, then the argument uh, that this was uh, you know, a, an improper use of the act, an improper use of powers that give the, the state a great deal uh, of ability to, uh, you know, work uh, without respecting our rights, uh, you know, that becomes a real serious issue. And now, obviously, you know, this this act was invoked, uh, was not used uh, very long. It was used really just to justify, in a sense, a police and cleanup uh, operation. So in that sense, uh, you know, it's not quite uh, the same as the use of the War Measures Act in 1970 in terms of its scope and how it was used, but it remains, uh, you know, if that's a finding of the commission, it is a it is a mark against the uh, sitting government because uh, even though it was effective for solving the policing issue, uh, you know that shouldn't be used in those in those uh, circumstances. So, yeah, how the the commission makes a de- decision about whether things reach that level because the CSIS, you know, had said it doesn't meet the criteria of the CSIS Act of a national emergency, but that maybe there's a different understanding of the national emergency around the Emergencies Act. So again, the, the commissioner uh, will have to make a difficult decision there, which wasn't made easier today by Esther Lametti refusing to share uh, the legal opinion that he'd received ahead of invoking the act uh, under a solicitor-client privilege, You know, which again, leads you to maybe it wasn't uh, a cut and, cut and dried case of having met the criteria set out in the act. Um, the chief resigned the day after the emergency act was called. Does that point to obviously a need to grab some sort of central leadership the a the ea uh was called because obviously the chief had lost control didn't have a plan b wasn't listening to the intelligence how do we get all of this under control the opp the rcmp they're all there but there still needs to be someone in command which would apparently should have been him um again does that point to this being called as a cleanup plan so they could use some sort of form of central uh, central uh, uh, authority to clean this up. Yeah, I mean, that, that would be one way of thinking of what happened. And certainly it'd be a lot easier to deploy uh, a bunch of 
law enforcement agents from you know different services um if you have it under the e, uh, the the emergencies act then if it's just being put somehow under the command of the ottawa police but i think it you know it'll be easy to just put all the blame on on the chief of police in ottawa but again yeah uh, it's it's ultimately the federal government, you know, who relies on that police service to provide uh, security uh, during demonstrations in Ottawa. Uh, you would think they might uh, do more to try and uh, support uh, that chief or find, uh, you know, solutions if there was a failure there. And our provincial government, uh, likewise, uh, seemed uh, willing to just stand back and not even really come to the table to have a discussion uh, when called on by, by the Ottawa police force and, and the federal government. So... Uh, you know, I think it will be easy to to put all the the blame on one person, but uh, something of this scale isn't usually the result of just one person's failings. Uh, good point. And are you concerned that there still is not a plan in place? Clearly, there wasn't. It surprises me that a town like Ottawa that sees these protests all the time doesn't have what a plan in place if something goes horribly wrong, uh, meaning uh, one sort of central command to take over the municipal, provincial, and and federal police services. Do you think we'll get a plan out of this that was so obviously missing? Uh, well, one would hope so. But, you know, after we had the, you know, the, the shooting at the War Memorial and into Parliament, uh, one might have thought that would have been, uh, you know, a bit of a wake up call. And, you know, that mm. came after, you know, events in the 80s and 90s of people driving buses onto Parliament Hill and and the like, uh, uh, you know, not to mention a number of, you know, terrorist uh, uh, attacks at different embassies and so on in the 1980s. So, uh, you know, there seems to be a, a, a lack of ability to really treat this with a degree of seriousness, uh, you know, within the Ottawa bubble. And uh, one would hope that this will, you know, push uh, some changes, probably some see some changes suggested to the uh, CSIS Act and a number of other acts. But whether we see the the real coordination at the level, you know, the security uh, staff and the police forces in Ottawa is probably a more difficult question. Because again, they they fall under different governments, and so mm. it's a kind of typical Canadian problem, where you have you know a, a municipal police force. Uh, municipalities are creatures of the provinces, but it's a federal government who actually wants to see uh, better security. Peter Grape with us. Peter Grape with us, professor of political science, McMaster University, commenting on the Emergencies Act inquiry winding up this week. Peter, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. And you too. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Scott Radley with us now, host of the Scott Radley Show, coming up after the 6 o'clock news. And you can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He is with us now. Scott, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Hey, did you know there's a soccer game today? Did you watch really? that? Really? I thought I thought these days you were required by law. Yeah. Close the window. Yeah. We're the We can't. Please. I thought we were required by law these days to call it football. That, that's the cool new way. All the cool kids now call it football. And, and based on the result today, we weren't upset. We were gutted because of a knock against Canada. We got to use all these like soccer words now in order to be with the cool kids. And yes, we didn't fare well with the PK. The PK, we weren't good with the PK today. Oh man, we um, that 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 was that stood to be a one of the moments in Canadian sports hmm. history. Even though a penalty in soccer, not football, I'll call it soccer. Even though a penalty is supposed to be basically automatic, and you've got one of the best players in the world. Um, that would have been an absolute Canadian sports moment. Yeah. And it was so completely deflating. And I, I'll tell you, Scott, I, uh, Canada played an amazingly wonderful game today. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, they're taking on the number two team in the world. Canada was outstanding. They dominated Belgium, who are who is again the second ranked team in the world. And yet, I got to tell you, after that game was over, I felt. Canada, Belgium didn't win that game. Canada lost that game. Canada had mm. so many chances. They created the chances. They did a me between their goal line and the edge of Belgium's penalty area. Canada was dominant. And then they get there and they have 21 shots at net. Yeah. And you can't score a goal. There, there was a stat that someone threw out as I was driving in today. I was listening somewhere. And they said that, you know, they do these statistical things of expected goals. And Canada was, the the number of expected goals based on where Canada got shots from and everything else, that was the largest number of expected goals without scoring a goal in some huge period of time in the World Cup. Like, it was just, it was infuriating as the game went on that Canada did everything and then gets to the point where you could do something and then, oh, we can't do that. We still haven't, you and I are still tied for the all-time Canadian lead in goals scored in World Cups. <laughs> How do you feel if you're Belgium? How do you walk away from this, considering you are the number two team and you got you almost got spanked by a team that just got in? You feel like we would if we were playing in the Olympic men's hockey tournament and we had mm. won one nothing over Mexico. Yeah, It's like, okay, we escaped, we got away with one, but we played a stinker and... And the other team played great. Like, I don't want to take away from what Canada did. I don't think Belgium played their best, but I think Canada played exceptionally well. And just as has been, like, in 1986 when Canada was in before, never scored a goal. And it just is the bane of our existence that in these tournaments so far, Canada cannot find the back. And it's a big net. My, I was talking to someone. They said, it's a big net. How can we not score? Well, I mean... You you almost think that once we get one, we might get five the way it was mm-hmm. going today, but you got to get that one. Uh, what about just great defense? I'm being devil's advocate here. You mean by Belgium? Yeah. Uh, you know what? No, I, I I don't think you can. Not when Canada has this had that much time yeah. in close and like there was there was one shot. Now again, I'm picking on one, but there were a bunch. There was one shot where I can't remember which Canadian player. Uh, I think Buchanan had the ball just inside the penalty area. I know he was sliding into it, but put it about 60 feet over the net. Like it it was, it was, and it's like, I understand you were underneath the ball and sliding into it. But again, it's just one of those things where it's like at some point, someone's got to get a shot on net. Their their goalie made one outstanding, well, he made the penalty save and he made another one on a header. He made two outstanding saves in that game. He only had to make three stops. Out of all that pressure that Canada put on, all the time they had the ball down near Belgium's net, he only had to make three stops. That, that to me, is the difference and the problem. Had Canada put 10 shots on net, I would bet you all the money I have, one or two of those would have gone in. What does this say about where Canadian soccer is? Your predictions, your thoughts about Sunday's game, 11 a.m. against Croatia? Uh, well, it, it shows you that up to the scoring part, Canada can play with the very best teams in the world. Mm. Uh, now, you know, we, we will see as this tournament goes on if Belgium is full measure for their number two ranking. I mean, maybe Belgium has slipped. I don't know. But we don't have any reason to think that right now. Canada just dominated one of the world's top teams. So uh, you have to be optimistic. And again, you have to yeah. believe that at some point, 
somebody's going to find a way to put a ball in. And when they do, again, maybe the dam bursts. Like, I really, as I was watching that game today, I thought if Davies had scored on that penalty, what was it, nine minutes in, eight minutes in, something like that, they may have scored four goals today. Because all of a sudden, all the pressure's off, and here we go. We've done it. The, the, we've, we've pierced that balloon, and you know we, they may have put three or four in. I don't know, but it seemed like the pressure to score just built and built and built. The conversation continues after the 6 o'clock news on the Scott Radley Show. You can read them in your Hamilton Spectator. As always, Scott, thanks for the time. Have a great show. Thanks, Scott. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, greatly appreciate it. And we leave it to you the taxpaying customer to have the last word. Joe recalled in earlier to say, why does it take 26 years to inspect a sewage leak? How long did the Shadow Creek spills inspection take? And who was it that finally got to that one? Yeah, one more.